Thank you, worship team. The, uh, all the Christmas music today has really been a gift, and it goes perfectly along with the theme of our week, which is, of course, joy, like the Andersons read for us. Thank you, Anderson family. Christmas is supposed to be joyful, and we're supposed to be joyful at this time of year. So yeah, a little Christmas music doesn't hurt to put us in the spirit. So let's keep that joy conversation going and take a look at our passage for today from Luke chapter 4. Fantastic. Uh, in the Gospel of Luke, this is Jesus' first public appearance. Jesus has been baptized. Uh, he's gone into the wilderness to be tested and now has returned home to start his public ministry. So uh, let's start that passage. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. There's a lot of excitement about this Jesus thing that's happening. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom to the prisoners and recovery of sight to the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, Today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. It's a pretty good sermon. But they said, Isn't this Joseph's son? They asked. Jesus said to them, Surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you will tell me, Do here in your hometown what we've heard you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut up for three and a half years and there was severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy at the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet none of them were cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of town, and took him to the bow of a hill on which the city was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. Y'all, I'll go ahead and admit it. I've preached some pretty bad sermons, but no one has ever tried to throw me off a cliff, though I'm sure some have wanted to. So what did Jesus do to make these people mad enough to kill him in such a short sermon? Well, let's start to try to answer this question by looking at the passage that Jesus read from. It's from Isaiah 61. Let's throw it up on the screen. It, the text that Jesus read goes like this. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me 
because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom to the captives, and release from darkness to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God for all who mourn. Did you notice anything? Something strange, something different between the two readings. Jesus has made a change to the passage he read. Now, this is basically Jesus' hometown. He knows what life is like here. He knows these people, their context, their lives, their struggles, and so on. He grew up, like them, under Roman oppression, paying extortion-level taxes to fund the military that conquered and was occupying them. They are living under the rule of pagans that do not know or respect their God. They are living in a world of violence and fear. And there's no recourse, not really, for a Judean that is abused or wronged by a Roman. And there were even laws that required them to serve the occupying Roman soldiers when requested. Travelers were easily and often victimized by these occupiers. Even if you went on pilgrimage to worship God at the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, the Roman fortress, Atonia, uh, home to the legion that dominated the city, was built against the northern wall uh, of the temple space, so that even when you went to worship the God of power and might, the God of freedom and liberation, the God that saved your ancestors, the God who rescues his people, you would have to pass built taller than the temple on purpose, this massive reminder of Roman military might. The military machine was always there to remind them of who was really in charge. So when Jesus starts this familiar passage, the people are probably hoping for some catharsis. But as we already noticed, Jesus has intentionally redacted this reading. You can almost Hear the crowd cheer in the synagogue. Jesus starts, I have come to proclaim good news to the poor. You can almost hear him. Amen! I've come to restore the brokenhearted. Amen! I've come to bring freedoms to the captive. Amen! I've come to release prisoners from darkness. Amen! I've come to declare the year of the Lord's favor. Amen! You, you can almost feel the anticipation, right? All the amens growing, the people getting ready for their favorite part, vengeance. God will crush their enemies. God will set them back on top. Fire, brimstone, power, armies of angels, revenge on their enemies and their oppressors. Here it comes. Bring it, Jesus. Give us what we want. Drop the hammer. Bring the fire. Call down judgment, the very wrath of God. So Jesus continues. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut up for three and a half years and a severe famine covered the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy at the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. Not only does Jesus cut the vengeance bit out, but he reminds them that God has always loved their enemies. Sidon was a historic oppressor of Israel, the birthplace of the evil queen Jezebel, the source of much of the apostasy in the Hebraic kingdoms. 
And Naaman was a Syrian military leader, a key enemy of Jerusalem. And in Jewish legend was the archer who had killed Ahab, the king of Israel. And Jesus says that God loves these. And the people are furious. They are so angry with Jesus and what he has to say that their worship service becomes a riot and the mob attempts to throw Jesus off a cliff. <laughs> they are so consumed with their need for vengeance against their enemies that they completely miss the joy of Jesus' message of good news, the message of rest restoration of freedom, of God's love and God's favor. These idiots, these fools, what's wrong with them? How dare they act so much like us? How many of us today are walking around burdened with the hurts, the scars, the wounds, the memories of what someone has done to us? Maybe it's something recent, maybe it was something long ago. Perhaps something small, an offhanded comment that stung in just the right or maybe the wrong way. Or perhaps something big, something that really mattered. Something that really hurt you physically, mentally, financially, emotionally, spiritually, sexually, vocationally. Maybe you were really deeply wounded. The longer I'm a pastor, the clearer it becomes. Everyone has been hurt. Everyone has something in their past. Everyone is wounded and everyone has scars. Now, if I was a, a betting preacher, I, I'd wager all my hymnals that all of y'all have someone or something in mind right now that you've, you've remembered, you've got something that's come up. Maybe you've been carrying this hurt for a long time. Maybe you've almost gotten used to the hurt. Like it's more of just this dull numbness in your soul than real pain anymore. Maybe you can even ignore it or, or keep it out of your mind most of the time. But then something happens. Something comes up to remind you of that person or that event. And it's like the scar tears open again. And the hurt is just as fresh as ever because it's still there. Just just below the surface. Maybe you've been able to put it out of your mind, but you can't quite put it out of your heart. And who could blame you? After what they did? After what happened to you? And maybe, maybe you're sitting out there and you're starting to squirm right now because you know how this sermon goes. You're getting already a, a little annoyed or a little worried because you're pretty sure that I'm going to tell you that you need to forgive them. And you kind of have this idea that that's what you're supposed to do, you know, as a Christian. But pastor, you, you might be thinking, you don't know what they did to me. I have a right to get back at them. I have a right to feel like this. I have a right to be angry. I have a right to hate them after what they did. And I think you're right. You have a right to hurt this person. 
to get back at them, to be angry with them, to count them as your enemy, and to hate them. Finally, you might think to yourself, a preacher who gets it. I love Jesus, and I love his teachings, and maybe one day we can live like that. But that's just too idealistic to think that we can do that here and now in the real world, especially after what happened to me. I can't forgive them. They can't get away with what they've done. Listen, you have a right to your bitterness. You have a right to cling to it, to hold that in your heart. But bitterness cannot share space with joy. And so many people have it wrong because we think that to forgive someone is to let them get away with what they did like it never happened. But that's not always the case. In good relationships, we aim for reconciliation. But that takes both parties wanting to be reconciled. Sometimes the person that hurt you isn't going to apologize. They aren't going to ask for forgiveness, and they aren't going to seek reconciliation. In these situations, forgiveness is not forgetting. Because some people are dangerous, and some people are toxic, and if you let them, they're going to hurt you over and over, and you don't need to let them. Sometimes forgiveness involves setting strong boundaries. Sometimes forgiveness will involve putting distance between you and them. Sometimes you need to leave the relationship. Forgiving does not always mean forgetting. Forgiveness is giving up your right to vengeance. Sometimes we need to forgive them that wronged us for our own sake. In letting them go free, we've turned ourselves free from this right to take revenge. Maybe that's why in Romans 12, Paul says this, do not avenge yourselves, but leave room for God to handle it. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Church, revenge is too ugly a path. Bitterness is too heavy a burden. The role of judge does not belong to you. When you hold on to hurt, when you hold on to your right to hate someone, when your heart sits in judgment of another, that is space in your heart that you are keeping from God. 2020 has been a hard year, and we have been reminded how quickly things can change and how short life can be. So stop wasting your time on hate and bitterness, judgment, and the spirit of vengeance against your political enemies, against your bullies, against your abuser, against your family, whoever hurts you, stop carrying them around with you. They don't deserve it. It's been too long, and they are just too heavy. 
And the truth is, you don't need to give them any more of yourself. You were not created to bear these kinds of loads. You were not created for bitterness and hatred. You were not created for a life of anger, a life as the judge of the world. You were not meant to turn your soul into a prison for those who have hurt you. You were created for freedom and love and full life, for healthy relationships and for joy. They have lived rent-free in your heart for too long. It's time to evict them and make room for Jesus and the joy that he brings. Now let, let me close by being honest. I don't know what this is going to take for you. Maybe you need to talk to someone. Maybe you need to talk to them. Maybe it's a phone call, a text. Maybe you need to write a letter. Maybe you need to find a therapist or a pastor who can help you start to walk through what you've been carrying around in your heart and your soul and your mind. You need a therapist and Jesus. You may need to say goodbye to someone, end a relationship, change course somewhere in your life. You might need to get rid of that totem of your hurt, that thing that you hold on that, to that reminds you, to help you remember to be angry. Because we like to be angry sometimes. Maybe you need to get out of that house. Stop looking at that picture. Erase that voicemail. You ever done that? I had a voicemail of someone insulting me that I didn't erase for several years so I could go and remember why I was so angry at them. Erase that voicemail. Stop letting Facebook tell you when it's their birthday. Maybe you just need to take a deep breath and decide. I will not carry this for one more day. But start today. Start to let go and make room. Make room for life. Make room for freedom. Make room for joy. And make room for Jesus. To close, I, I want to offer a prayer for y'all to, to say along with me. I don't have the words up on the screen. I'll say them and invite you to respond. All of these words come from in, in order. They're from Job 7, a prayer of Job in his desperation, a prayer from 1 Samuel where Hannah prays out of her hurt and bitterness, and Proverbs 14.10. Will you repeat after me? I will speak openly to you, O Lord. I will speak openly to you, O Lord, and release all of my bitterness to you, and release all of my bitterness to you. Lord, I give you the bitterness of my soul. Lord, I give you the bitterness of my soul. Please look upon my scars and remember. Please look upon my scars and remember. My heart knows its own bitterness. My heart knows its own bitterness. I release them to you. I release them to you. Amen. In just a moment, the, the band is going to, to play. Uh, I think we're going to hit joy to the world again. Is that right? We're going to, to make this declaration. Did you know that joy to the world is not a Christmas song? Joy to the world. Yeah. <laughs> See the, uh, the fellow minister back there saying, yeah, this is how you ruin a good Christmas dinner. Joy to the World is not a song about 
Christmas. Uh, this is, I mean, listen to the words. words. He rules the world. This is a song about Jesus' ultimate victory. Let's take a moment, and we're going to sing Joy to the World and declare Jesus' victory in our lives. Let's allow him to be the king of our lives, to rule our world with truth and grace. And, and this is our time in the service where we respond. We believe that God speaks uh, in this time together in all sorts of different ways, in scripture, in prayer, in music, in the sermon, in the quiet moments in between pieces. We think God is alive and active and moving here. If God has touched you, if God has spoken to you or whispered or pricked you in some way today, this is the time to to respond either silently or in song or prayer with the band. And maybe it's time to make a decision. Maybe today you're going to decide, I'm not carrying this burden of revenge, of vengeance, of hatred, of anger. I'm not going to let this person define the story of my life anymore. Maybe you need to make that decision today and offer that to God. Maybe you need to take the first step on the journey of faith today and say, you know what? I want this. I, I, I want to trade the bitterness that I've held in my heart and, and let that space become the throne of Christ for me.